evening everybody and welcome to LSE. My name is Richard Hilton, I'm the Arts Coordinator here. I'm pleased to present a new series of talking pictures featuring talks by artists and activists. These events have been organised to coincide with the exhibition Viewing Restricted, Representing Poverty, which is currently on show in the old building, the Atrium Gallery. The exhibition has been initiated by the Centre for the Study of Global Governance and has been organised in collaboration with LSE Arts. We are pleased to be able to invite not only tonight's speaker, Jessica Dimmock, who has travelled from New York to be here, but also for future talks over the coming month or so, um, two other artists participating in the exhibition, Viewing Restricted, Sharon Lovell, who will be speaking on Monday, and Mishka Henna, who will be speaking on the 26th of May, and also he will be taking part in a panel discussion on the 27th of May here at the LSE. Um, the talks programme is actually more expansive than talking pictures, but more details can be found on, at our website, which is www.lsc.ac.uk forward slash arts, or if you've got one of these brochures, um, all the talks are in there. Um, we're delighted to welcome Jessica Dimmock, one of the artists and photographers exhibited in Viewing Restricted, to talk here tonight about her work. Jessica is a graduate of the International Centre of Photography's program in Documentary Photography and Photojournalism. She has received the F Award for Concerned Photography from Forma and Fabrica and the Inga Morath Award from Magnum and the Marty Forscher Fellowship for Documentary Photography from PDN. Her work has appeared in numerous publications including Aperture, the New York Times Magazine, Fortune, Time, New York Magazine, Newsweek, Wired and Fader. Her book, The Ninth Floor, published by Contrasto, was published in 2007 and her first international solo exhibition was held at Former, the International Centre for Photography, Milan. Um, in spring 2008, Jessica had two solo exhibitions at FOAM, the Photography Museum of Amsterdam, and at the Foley Gallery in New York. Um, Jessica's going to be talking tonight for about 40 minutes, so there'll be opportunities for you then, after that, to ask her any questions. So um, I'm very pleased to welcome Jessica. Can you hear me okay if I speak this way? No. All right, can you hear me okay if I speak over here? Yeah. Okay. Um, good evening. So I'm going to, I'll switch them down when I mute. I'm gonna talk tonight about the project that I did um, for the London School of Economics for the Viewing Restricted Project and go into a little bit more detail about kind of the wider context of that story and how it relates to poverty and then the kind of smaller sub-story that existed within that and then show you, depending on how time goes, either one long-term project or a current body of work in my long, another long-term project. So the project that I did for Viewing Restricted takes place at a hospital in Manhattan, technically in Manhattan. I don't know if you're familiar with the geography, but Manhattan is basically a long island 
and you know the Bronx and Brooklyn are these other boroughs that exist and are really quite large and have sometimes very bad poverty but are, are quite far away from kind of the epicenter of all of the wealth that's in Manhattan. But right off of Manhattan, there's a tiny little island um, called Roosevelt Island where a lot of diplomats that are at the UN live. It's also kind of a planned, intentional community, typically is kind of middle class, but is also a place where families tend to live and it has always been this way. But the other thing that's always been there is that there have been, there's a long history of hospitals where New York's most undesirable end up. It used to be the hospital that this project takes, takes place at used to be called the Welfare Hospital, then it was called the Hospital for the Incurables, and now it's a city hospital um, called Kohler Goldwater. There, there's actually two, and they have, they kind of hug the island and their sister campuses. So I went to this place originally because uh, someone who I had photographed for many years ended up there as a patient, and I went there originally to see her. And what I discovered in this place was that even though it was kind of just spitting distance from the wealthiest neighborhood of New York City, which is the Upper East Side, which is what you can see when you look across the water, it was this real dumping ground for what seemed to be the most poor, um, vulnerable, and disabled people of New York City. So there are people that just come in for a short visit, but I'd, it seems to be that the average stay for a patient there is between five and 12 years. So it's the type of place where people get sent sometimes with very minor things wrong with them, or sometimes things that don't really require actual 24-hour hospitalization, but they get kind of stuck in this system and they end up just staying and staying and staying on. So I became very interested in kind of looking at the world of this hospital, kind of the way people exist, and the way that they form lives for themselves there because the terms are so long. So, for example, there are things like smoking rooms in the hospital where all the patients will come and, and gather. There are two televisions playing at the same time, cigarettes everywhere, people panhandle in the hallway. I mean, patients panhandle in the hallway. They ask for money, they ask for cigarettes, uh, people trade drugs, people leave frequently to get liquor and get drugs and then bring it back into the hospital sell cigarettes, all of this stuff. So the impression, and if you talk to the patients there, the, the feeling of the place is, is much more akin to something like a, a jail or a very, very dysfunctional, it's closest to a jail, um, and much less of a hospital. You, there's very little actual medical care that seems to be going on, and it's, it's rare that you see patients really being treated. Um, so that was kind of the overall context that, that I was interested by and that originally drew me to the place. After spending some time there, I started noticing that a really large percent of the population are young, so let's say 30 years and, and below, African American and Latino guys who are in wheelchairs and are paralyzed. And so the reason that so many of them are there is that these are kind of the veterans of the U.S. drug war. And so guys that used to be in gangs or used to deal drugs or used to be kind of out on the street and have been shot and are now, for the most part, paralyzed from the neck down, might have some mobility in their arms, not usually. 
So this kind of subculture or subset of people there, there were all of these young guys who used to be really, really tough and now have to rely on each other to do really basic things like smoke a cigarette, eat applesauce, change, you know, change their shirt, things like that. So the, the way that these really um, very street type of guys would relate to each other I thought was really interesting and also something I hadn't seen much. I think that there's been a lot of documentary work and also fiction about the life of gangs, you know, either the street culture of the bang bang shoot 'em up or the kind of other aspect of it which is that you end up in jail or you end up in a grave. But there's a kind of third thing that happens which I felt like wasn't really seen and it was why I thought it was so appropriate for this project and for viewing Restricted because there was this third aspect of what happens to people which is that they get shot and they can't move again and they get kind of tucked away and forgotten about. So that was kind of the sub-story within this larger story that I found most interesting. So I'm just going to run through a handful of slides. Uh, the work is there in the in the atrium. So wake up. So I'm just going to run through a handful of slides, and then I'll take any questions about this specific project, if you have them. So this is Ramik, who is uh, one of the patients that I spent the longest time with. This is Ramik's roommate. the pool hall, the smoking room. He's the most paralyzed. I'll talk about him a little bit after. This is also Big Lou. things that weren't necessarily covered. Um, one is this one character, Ramik, who is 27 years old. He might have just had a birthday. 27 or 28, who was shot several years ago and is now paralyzed from the neck down. He has a little bit of mobility in his arms, but he can't do things. I mean, even to smoke a cigarette, you know, it's kind of a process of getting his hands are, are clenched, so it's a process of kind of getting the cigarette wedged in there and then being able to lift it to his mouth. And the other, um, the other guy who I shot is his name Big Lou, who I think looks actually pretty decent, but he's 40 years old and was shot at 20 and is the most paralyzed out of all of the guys that I spent time with. He can't get out of bed on his own. He can't kind of 
get into his chair or go around on his own. He, he requires kind of constant care. So this is a guy who, you know, at the age of 19 or 20 was on the streets and made bad choices and has lived at this point half of his life in, this, in these circumstances and has been at Kohler on and off for about 10 years. So it's kind of the compounding effects of being paralyzed and being stuck where he is, but also kind of the environment at Kohler where there, there's not a tremendous amount of care and there's not a lot of rehabilitation. There's no reason that some of these guys, and Ramik tried very hard to do this, there's no reason that some of these guys can't get jobs, live in apartments, and have kind of care that comes to them. But the system that they're in is such that unless they're really, really, really pushing for it all the time, and even in those situations, they kind of just get left by the wayside. And, and then it's a life of you know, doing a little bit of drugs, watching a lot of TV, and just kind of sitting around and waiting. Um, are there any questions about this project? Yeah. I originally went there to, and this will make a little bit more sense once we take a look at another project that I did, um, but I originally went there because a, a woman I had photographed for several years who was a heroin addict had, uh, had ended up there and was there for several months. And so I went to visit her. I was no longer photographing her, but I went to visit her and she knows the way I like to work. She knows that I like these types of stories and also places that are just a little bit weird, which this place is. I mean, on, on top of all the kind of injustice of it, it's just also a really strange, bizarre place. And so I go to visit her and she's like, you've got to photograph here. This place is amazing. And so she introduced me to some of the people. The guys that I first got introduced to were people that she was buying drugs from. And I would watch the situation where they would be these quadriplegics in mechanical wheelchairs that would say to her, uh, you know, put the money in this cigarette box, take the drugs out of that cigarette box, and show me your pussy. Um, and I, so I started talking to some of these guys, and then I went and returned, and, and they were quite open about it. They have stories that they want to tell. I mean, they were really, gave me the access I needed. Um, it was during this last summer, so I started it a bit before the viewing restricted projects started, and I finished it <laughs> a bit after the deadline. So, <laughs> you know, three or four months of of going there. Yes. It's how they would describe. It's how they mostly described it. It's a city hospital. It's not a private hospital. It's a city hospital. Um, and I've never been to prison, so I don't know the comparison. 
um, these guys all have these guys have all been to prison. The, the the young population that I focused on had been a surprising amount of people in the jail, even the ones that weren't kind of caught up in gang violence, but had you know very odd things happen to them, like strokes at a young age or early onset of, M of MS. A surprising amount of the people in the jail had also been to prison because it, it's a little bit of the community that they seem to serve. They're not getting patients from the Upper East Side, which is right in the nearby vicinity. They're getting kind of mostly minority, mostly very urban poor, mostly uh, the most disabled, and they're being brought there. And it was amazing how often they would say, in their words, that it was like prison. Now, I don't know if that's because they feel trapped in their own bodies, or if because the structure of it, the kind of sneaking around, um, you know, bending the rules, always kind of being watched, you know, checked in, checked out. There, there feels like at this place sometimes that there are as many security guards as there are doctors, and there are as many security cameras as there are, you know, medical stations. So I think that that's part of, you know, this kind of constant surveillance is what I picked up on, and I assume what they're reacting to. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's um, I mean, there were things that, first of all, everyone that I photographed, you know, especially, if you can see their face, they gave me permission, and that, that's the way, I don't know how the laws are here, but that's definitely how the laws are in the States in, the, in a hospital setting. So everyone whose face can be seen and who is kind of recognizable has given me written consent. There were situations that I, you know, especially there was a whole group of really young kids there, really disabled, really young kids that have pretty much gr are growing up in this hospital. They've either been abandoned, the city has, you know, placed them in a foster type of institution, but they're they're not well enough to really be cared for foster, cared for by foster parents, and that was something I thought was incredibly sad, um, but not something I felt comfortable trying to access. Yes. No, not not yet. Uh, perhaps it depends on the context. Yes. Well, I would want it. Um, you know, the first the first context I can imagine it being in would be something like a New York magazine, which which for two reasons: one, obviously, because it's local, and two, because it runs photography in a really respectful manner. So it doesn't feel like, you know, it's just some photos thrown on a page to, to kind of illustrate an agenda that they have, but that they, in the past, have, and I've worked with them in this way, where they pick up stories that have been done photographically and they kind of go along with that story. So that, that would be one obvious place. Yeah. Yeah, I got a call, I, I like most of them which is not always the case in, in projects, but I like most of them. Uh, Ramik, who is one of the guys that I followed the most, is probably my favorite. He was really kind of warm and great with me. But I like all of them. I mean, they were really wonderful with me, and you know, you, you start forming very personal relationships, so 
like I didn't come around for like a week or two because I was moving out of my place and you know all this like emotional stuff was happening in my life and I come back and they you know they're like are you okay and how are you feeling and you know we you bond quite a bit um, and I got a call from Big Lou the day before I left but I didn't hear the message until I got here anything else okay so I'm gonna show you Okay, I'm going to quickly show you one new project. Shush. Um, and I, because this is not done, I um, I totally welcome feedback and thoughts. And then and then I'll show you a multimedia piece that runs at about. So I'm going to go through this quickly. I think 
little bit of background about the project. It should be pretty self-explanatory. But you know, as a working photographer and also as a journalist, I'm interested and concerned by what's happening to print media. And I think globally and, and certainly in the States, there's a very sharp decline in print journalism and um, you know, quality magazines that have been around for a really long time are folding and newspapers that have that are really important are going into online versions only, but there's a huge amount of these celebrity tabloids, and they do really well. They're some of the only form of print media that makes any profit currently. So I thought it would be really interesting to kind of look at the people that create the pictures that appear in those magazines, because they're actually producers of very important cultural production for right now, for better or for worse. Um, and so to kind of look at who they are and what the lifestyle is like, and then also what it says about you know, the larger issue of celebrity fascination, et cetera. So it's a work in progress. Um, and if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Yep. This I'm shooting on a Canon 5D Mark II. Um, I shoot film and digital. This really lends itself to digital. Certain things lend themselves better to film. Prime lenses only. I, on, I only shoot with you know lenses that don't zoom into your subjects because I like being really close to my subjects. And I only shoot with available light. So, which is interesting in this project because their flashes are going off all the time. So I'm often stealing their light, but I'm not using a flash myself. And it's fun to steal. I mean, I don't know how many of you in the audience are photographers, but it's fun to steal other people's light. It does funny things. Yeah. Um, did, did working so close to paparazzi throw in parallel uh, contradiction of, sorry, the opposite, in their relationship between them and their subjects and your relationship between you and some of your previous subjects? Um, some of my previous subjects, like, so not them. Yeah, so like parallels. so really I mean I work in a really different way than they work and I think that they if anything are a little bit surprised by how close I want to get to them they're letting me and and the ones that are getting it are kind of slowly coming around and they're letting me get close but I think that they're surprised at how much time I want to spend with them because they will photograph Madonna as she comes out of Kabbalah and the door to Kabbalah is here and the door of the Escalade SUV is here and there are 30 guys there, and Madonna's going to come out with two bodyguards, and some of them are on the roof, and some of them are all around. And so they have maybe three to four seconds to photograph her. And that's it. And they make a lot of money with that photograph. They make a lot more money than I do. Um, so I think that they are a little bit thrown off by how intimate I want to get. But I think we work in really different ways. What, what do paparazzi think about photography? They don't think much about photography. They, uh, they, th they think a lot about money. And I'm not saying this in a judgmental way. I mean, some of the, I don't like all of these guys, but some of them I really like. Um, but they don't know much about photography. They don't really know anything about photography. A lot of them are, 
are immigrants from Mexico and Brazil, and they used to be valet drivers, and they would give the paparazzi tips. And then they realized that they could press a button and make you know, 10 times as much money. So they don't know, again, I don't know how many of you are photographers, but they don't know what an f-stop is, or they don't know what shutter speed is. And they're always telling me that my flash isn't working, because I don't use a flash. And they're always, you know, reminding me, like, and they were trying to be very sweet, you know, oh, like, oh, your flash isn't on. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, so they don't really think much about it. You know, and I show, I show them these pictures, and they like them, because they, they do photography all the time, but they don't think about it in the same way. And so they, <laughs> I mean, they do kind of a very different style. So they're like, oh, it's so artistic, and look at the, I look so good, and, you know, they get a kick out of it. When, when they let me show them the work. Not that they all like me photographing them. Yeah? You mentioned that you're a journalist. Um, what topics do you have in your work? Um, I do, well, I really like long-term projects, which is the next thing I'm going to load up. I'm going to stick this in so it starts to load. I really like doing long-term projects that get very involved in people's lives. And I think the kind of common th thread or the, the thing that always gets to me is stories where you can really feel a sense of people's isolation or fear or desperation. So I'm a little bit less kind of newsy and a little bit more about kind of getting inside of people's experiences. And I find that one of the experiences that I keep gravitating towards is feeling very estranged and very kind of freaked out and alone. Yes. When you're working and taking photos in those situations, how much do you set up the photos and, and how much do you kind of take a back seat and, and take the photo when it happens? I take, um, I do 0% setting up. I don't tell people where to sit. I don't tell people to do things again. I don't move things on a table. I don't touch anything. I kind of really am of that camp. I think that there are other ways of doing it. I think setting things up can be great. It's just not what I do. So I, I just let it happen. And I say, do your thing and, and just ignore me as best you can. Um, about your the, the last group, the paparazzi, um, group, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, your editing process. I mean, I, I think it was a very strong uh, uh, a group of, of photographs with a very definite feel, and I was wondering if you could talk about maybe as you're shooting, when you conceive the project, and then as you're actually you're making the images and you're shooting the project, and then when you're kind of in the dark room, if you will, or on, on the computer, uh, putting those images together, if it changes during that process, I, I mean, you can kind of Presumably you have a large body of photos that you're drawing them from yeah. to, to do the set. It tends to be, I don't know with you guys, it tends to be <laughs> what, like 3% of the photos you take, you end up using. Yeah, so you know, it, like you take a ton and ton and ton. And then I, I, tend, to things, I tend to like things that are um, cinematic and kind of look like they could be pulled from a film noir or that they could be film stills. That's just what I personally like. So I edit in a way that I like things creepy, I like things dark, I like things a little weird, and I like things not too obvious. So I try to edit that way. Um, 
but there are many different ways you can kind of edit the same body of work. Yes? Thank you. Um, I just wondered who funds this place. I, um, I presume it's funded by the state. And also, um, I'd like to know, the way you describe um, the people, there seems to be this tremendous air of resignation about them. Uh, uh, it's very static, as if nothing is going to change. And I just wondered if anybody tries to help them. Um, I mean, are there any staff there who, I mean, if people are in prison, there are, you know, psychiatrists and people who try and help people. Yeah, I, I, I don't mean to be too condemning about the place, um, but, it, you know, it's my, it's my opinion. It, it's a city hospital, so presumably city funds and, and tax money is what runs the place. And I think it's pretty low on the totem. I mean, I'm trying to be honest here, and I think it's pretty low on the totem chain all across the board. I don't think that you have this terrible, terrible place, but then fantastic and really inspired doctors are working there. It, it's, it's not a Hollywood version of the, of the hospital. It's just the hospital. And it's kind of the lowest on the totem pole across the board. So the staff that works there, there's some good people, but they're, you know, they're not really busting ass to, to make things different, and it's very rare. It's why people end up there for you know, 15 years, because no one's really doing anything to kind of move it along. That was my impression. You know, I, I'm not speaking on behalf of the hospital. It's just what I observed from going and, and seeing people that became my friends there for a while. I'm going to move on to this. This is um, it's a project called The Ninth Floor. It's a multimedia piece, and it, it'll run kind of like a film for about 10 minutes. Um, and this is a project about a group of heroin addicts that were living together in the apartment of a former millionaire in a really nice neighborhood of New York City, where they kind of moved in and, and took over. I don't know if you're familiar with the Flatiron District, but it's really nice. Again, it's not a place I could afford to live. Um, and so it documents kind of the, the last years of these people living there and follows their story. But we gotta see if there's gonna be sound, because if there's not. Let's see. Yep.
sometimes it's scary. Like I think I'm OD. There's many times where I've done a shot and I'm like, wow, this might be it. I think I've cut myself out of dying many times. I've had my phone in my hand and everybody to dial 911. What makes me go back? Oh, because I convinced myself I'm not going to go that far again or whatever. I'll just do a little bit less. thinking about was I want to get high, I want to get high, you know, I want to get high. I guess the junkie life was what I wanted. I had really no other aspirations. I just never tried to do anything. The only thing I really wanted to do was, you know, get loaded and sit around and, and do nothing. So that's what I did. Thank you.
was it like the first time I did heroin? I'll never forget it. My roommate's door was open. A little crack. And it was like in the movies or something. There was the candle and the spoon over the candle. And I just did it. And I remember leaning back and I was on a cloud and there was not a worry in this world. They just relaxes you, takes away any of the concern. No fears, no worries. It doesn't do that forever. After a while you're just doing it to stay straight, to stay normal. And you're not getting the same effects anymore. And then that's why they say you're chasing the first hit. Because then you're just doing it to try and get that same feeling that you got in the beginning. But you never really get that. You may get glimpses from time to time, but... Never really get that. methadone when she was conceived. By the time she was born I was on 50 and now I'm completely off. Not stupid. I don't think anyone owes me anything. I know that everything I did I made my own choice about it. And that's what sucks real bad. You know, I got a daughter now that looks at me like I am just the best thing and so I just have to look at her and be like you have no idea 
and it, it's just it's just scary to me. You know, I'm I'm 31 years old and I have no education. I mean, I look at her and I figure, you know, I'll do anything for her. Yeah, and I just I just you know I I I, I pray that. And I'm going to be able to pull it together correctly, you know. I, I think I've came a long way, but not nearly far enough. Not nearly far enough yet. And she'll just wake up in the morning and like, and she'll just give a big smile. And no matter in what kind of mood you're in, can't be upset. They're just, just so perfect, you know. I mean, it just makes you think about life completely different. There's not any decision that I could ever make again without her being the top of the priority. Because you're just that good. You just got so much goodness in you. And it also lets you really see that human beings are inherently good we learn bad I mean there's nothing bad in this little girl I mean you know it's just she's just just nothing but good right <laughs> set first on uh, Media Storm and I actually thought it was the best one of the best sets on that whole site so I think it's a very powerful piece and I think mm, it brought me to tears again you know, so I think it's a testimony to a very powerful piece of work when you did it um, when, you, when you put it together did you how closely did you work with Media Storm um, not very closely at all uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I'm a, I'm a touch low maintenance, so I, you know, I was, I didn't have a problem kind of handing over hard drives and saying, you do this thing because I don't, I don't know how to do what they do. MediaStorm is the um, multimedia company that, that makes these kind of narratives and, and puts the audio with music and with the text. I don't know how to do those things. I'd love to. Um, I was also away, and it was a very short time frame, so there was kind of no choice. But I had come out with a book version of this story just prior. So, and the book, I was very involved in the editing of it and very involved in the narrative arc. So for the most part, this project kind of follows the same 
story and uses it as a blueprint. So in, in that sense, you know, it's, I still feel like it's my story. I, I love that this is, I mean, if I hadn't had, let's say, this on, on MediaStorm, you would never have seen that work, probably. I mean, you wouldn't say, oh, I have your book at home. Um, so I love kind of how wide-reaching something like this is. I love books. I mean, it's, it's how I shot this project. I, I didn't know I was making a book when I was shooting it, but I always pictured it, it as a book. When I would make portfolios, I would always do them in book form. I mean, I really feel that this story is, is a book. There's something very intimate. So I'm kind of biased about that. But, but I think that this is an effective way to tell a story as well. Um, I worked on this for three years, and I think, you know, they were they were moderately comfortable the first year. I mean, we worked slowly, so you don't just kind of barge in and start doing this. It's, you build up trust. But I would say by by the second year, something had really shifted, where that's that's when it started getting really much rawer. I could photograph things like, I mean, photographing them doing drugs was something I could do on the first day. That wasn't a problem, because they do that every day. That's their life. Um, but the fighting, the intimacy, the romance, that took longer to get to. So it, it took, you know, almost two years to get there. Did you actually live there for any, like, say, few nights? I would, st I would stay. Um, I never lived with them, but I would, s I would spend nights in the apartment when they were all still there and then and I learned a lot by doing that even if I didn't make great pictures um, just kind of being inside of the headspace of not being able to leave and seeing for example one of the kind of most telling moments when I spent the night there and I was really tired so I don't think I made any good pictures but I was a student and I was going to school in the morning and I had spent the night there and they had these thick drapes always, so it always felt like nighttime in there. And I said something, I think we had been, they had been up all night, so I was up with them, and one of the guys said something about how it was morning, or I, I commented that it was morning, and he said, shh, you know, if you close your eyes, you can pretend it's not happening. And I thought, you know, this is never how I think about the morning. I mean, I might have days where I want to get out of bed, but I never think about a new day as kind of this dreadful thing. And it was a moment that I really kind of understood something more. So I would do that, or I would force myself to stay there for three or four days in a row and not leave, so just to kind of get into the trapped headspace. Yeah. All right, I just wanted to know your just to discuss your ideas of your relationship and the relationship between representation and poverty. Because I'm quite disturbed by photography's kind of obsession with the disenfranchised, the mm -hmm. other, the junkie, mm -hmm. the sick. And I presume you're not, you haven't been a junkie or sick or... And I just, I, I also, uh, I've got a lot of questions. One is, 
why you use music, particularly kind of something that's very sentimental and feels like it's got this kind of redemptive tone to it, which mm. I, again I find very manipulative. Mm. And I think that needs to be a very carefully, you know, chosen thing, if at all, to put it with photography. Um, a few other things. I mean, I don't want to stand in judgment, but I'm just feeling, what, what am I meant to take away from these projects? What am I meant to learn? Because they don't feel particularly analytical about photography or about, you know, drug abuse or about being ill or... So I just, yeah, I've got a few more, but if you could start with that. Okay. Um, I'll start with the first one, which is kind of my relationship to to these subjects and also, it, it sounds like what you're asking is my relationship to these subjects and also to the topic of addiction and so and how that kind of triangulates. Um, I was brought to this place very much on accident. I never set out to do a project on drug use. I never thought I would do this story. I was studying documentary photography at the time and I was approached by someone on the street who saw me with a camera, invited to kind of go along with him and photograph him and this was the last place that he ever brought me to. And he brings me in here and he says, you know, this, this is Jessica, my photographer. And they then, the people there kind of allowed me to photograph them. That guy, that original introduction has, has disappeared. He was arrested shortly after, I've never spoken to him. But it was that initial introduction into this place that I didn't know I was going to even an hour before I was there. When I went inside, I, the, the kind of, way that it was going on right in this very expensive neighborhood, right under people's noses. I mean, there's a Calvin Klein designer that lives one floor up, $12,000 a month rent. And right below is this kind of hellhole of you know, addiction and desperation and, and all of this stuff. So I knew that there was something really kind of powerful about the story, but there was also a way that I felt really compelled to be there. And once I started shooting, it took me a little while to realize why I was so comfortable. Um, my father was an addict, which was not news to me. I mean, I knew that. But there was, there was something about this environment that I had definitely seen as like an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old. And people were never using drugs in front of me in the way that they are in this project. But there was something about that kind of vacant adult and this kind of preoccupation and the fear and the isolation that really stuck with me. Um, as, as far as this edit and the use of music and also the use of, of drugs in this edit, um, again, the way that this works, because I don't make multimedia pieces, is that you kind of hand over everything that you've shot and it's, it's reinterpreted by someone else. And it, it's not ideal, but there are compromises that have to happen. And I think, for me, the compromises have been worth it. I find that this is a, a bit of a drug-heavy edit it's not really the way that I would edit it. I, I think you can say a lot by almost never showing the drugs and saying a lot about kind of people's relationships and how fractured they are and how dependent they are and how, you know, how much of a roller coaster there is. And that's really what I was drawn to, this kind of laughing one minute and fucking the next and fighting the next after that and then having spaghetti and then being on the street. I mean, that, it was really this cycle of life that I was drawn to and that I felt like I could share. I don't think that people don't know what a junkie looks like. I don't know if they know what their relationship between a mother of an addict and you know a daughter in moments of hopefulness looks like, and then what it's like to kind of fall off. So 
that's what I tried to do. Um, you know, music, that was their call. You know, they made this piece. I, I, I wouldn't even know how to set, I mean, well, before I used some music, so that's not totally true, but I kind of take some of it for what it is. Uh, two questions. First one is, was there any period during this project where you felt that your safety might have been threatened or any time you felt unsafe, something might happen to you? And secondly, as a result of doing a project like this, how has it changed you and how has it inspired you maybe to see things differently than you may not have seen them before doing something like this? Um, as far as personal safety, there. Overall, they, these people were really great to me, and um, if anything, were a bit on the protective side, in terms of, you know, making sure that I don't I don't do heroin. I never did heroin. Um, making sure that that was not something that a path that I would ever go down, and that if I did, I, it was made very clear that I was out. You know, that that what was going on there was not going to be that. That was not going to be my introduction to kind of the hell that they live in, because I do believe that they really feel that they live in hell. So often they were very protective of me. There are some times that I'd arrive and just, you know, doing this type of work, you get like a, a feeling for when something's not right. And there are times that I would arrive and just something didn't feel right and I would leave. Um, but no, no major thing. And these, oh. Um, well, I think the experience of kind of watching the struggle that they go through has made me more sympathetic than than I was previously. And although impressed is not the right word, I'm kind of more shocked by like, it's, it's so much work. And this is something that didn't dawn on me even while I was shooting it, but almost later of like, every single day, these people, none of them have jobs, none of them, and none of them have money. And all of them are serious addicts, like 10 years, $100 a day type habits. And every morning they wake up, a little bit on the sick side, and they've got a small window of time where they have to go out, get money, then with that money, get drugs, then with those drugs, find a place to use them that's safe and that they can shoot up in, and they don't have a lot of time before they start getting sick and really debilitated. And that cycle goes on about you know twice a day and happens every single day for years and years. And that's, that's a lot of work, and it's a lot of of misery to go through kind of on this constant basis. And I don't think I realized that as much before. Yeah. I just wonder, how does it make you feel while you're doing this work? How do you feel? I mean, how can you kind of detach yourself from all the stuff that you're seeing? And because some of the things felt quite sort of a bit exploitative to me. I mean, I'm not saying that you meant it that way, but for example, the sex scenes and things like that, I was a bit sort of, I'm not sure how many people kind of feel that that's the sort of depth of knowledge they want to go in. It just makes me wonder how you feel about it when you're doing the work. I, um, I get pretty close to the people I photograph in all situations. I, I used to be a teacher, a public school teacher, and I believe that there's like a very strict line between when you're a teacher and a student, and there are some boundaries that don't get crossed. And in a clinical type of setting or a therapeutic type of setting, I believe in those boundaries. And I don't think that by being a photographer, I'm a clinician or a therapist. And I don't, I don't personally really believe that there's that same kind of line of boundaries. And I think that 
I know a lot about these people because they also know a lot about me. And that's how I work. I don't necessarily... Something that worries me a little bit is that s documentary photography somehow can not only portray suffering, but it can enact it. And that if you're not making the power apparatus, apparatus kind of visible, then you're somehow reenacting it. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I think I've, I felt that very strongly in the hospital, mm. that I was looking at images of sick people behaving like sick people. And here I'm looking at junkies behaving like junkies. And I, you know, it was, it, was, it was nice to hear you share some kind of biography and I wonder if that ever enters the work at all. It, it, it does and it doesn't. I mean, I think, that, I think you're accurate in saying that you don't learn a lot about me and you learn a lot about them. I mean, I, I think that that's true and, and that's the way that I've Worked. I mean, some people do photography in a strictly biographical or autobiographical sense. Some people are obsessed with telling their own stories, obsessed with self-portraiture, and some people, you know, you never see them. And for me, it was really about, I can't go back and recreate the story, and I can't, and there's not the story that I feel in my life currently, but I can kind of understand aspects of their story from my own experience and strive to tell their story by getting as intimate as possible. This is my belief. It, I can totally see other ways. But kind of lifting up the veil of some of what was going on. The mother's perspective, while her daughter has come back, is that Jessie is recovering very well, and that every time she disappears, her story is taken at face value, and this is where she's going. And it's not true. You know, she's doing crack in the room of her childhood, and she's running back to the city on weekends and that wasn't known about you know but but it was happening and so one of the things that i felt was important was to document what was going on in all forms the love of the mother but also kind of this dishonesty that was occurring all of the time No problem. Um, so maybe we can take um, four more questions here. So there's one here. I've followed this story for years, and I know that you said you worked on it for about three years. And um, one of the things that I've discovered, you know, doing my own projects and still working on is. Um, the participant-observer balance or that relationship with your subjects. And one of the um, points in your work that I find really inspiring is um, that level of intimacy or just the physical closeness to your subjects. And I, I've actually wanted to ask you for a while how you deal with that participant-observer relationship when somebody like um, Jesse, who you followed for years, relapses, or when someone is damaging themselves in front of you and you see somebody on that roller coaster and taking that downward turn, and you're obviously very close with them and very, you know, they're your friends and and you care for them. Um, how do you how do you 
reconcile that or how do you work internally you know just just considering yourself how do you, how do you reconcile um, your relationship to them um, and I, I think people have kind of touched on it as well but there's there's also the photographer as catalyst model too when you're around someone all the time it's like hey you know you should take a picture of this or let's right. put on a show for the photographer and everybody feels this sort of celebrity um, how do you how do you work through that it's really you know Jessie's a good example because she's the one that I got closest to and she's also one that you know for a while it really looked like she was going to be okay and that was really amazing um, and I spent a lot of time up at her mother's house when she had come out of jail and she had gained all this weight and I have a couple of positions on it one is that you know I want to document what she's actually going through it's not for me to dictate what is any kind of moral grounds of her life but I will always try to be a positive influence in her life. I will always try to encourage what is healthiest, what is best, what is most sane, and what is most kind of healthy and safe. And there were moments, and this is why I, I really feel like I'm not a clinician and I don't have this kind of strange boundary because I really, I love that girl. And there were moments where, you know, she had been clean for a while, she was trying to get to rehab, or her mother was trying to get her to rehab, and she was going to go and use. And she trusts me. She does anything in front of me. But she was going to go and use in the bathroom, and I'm in there with her. And I know that if she uses that time, that rehab, you have to be, have already started to detox for certain types of rehabs to be effective. And I know if she uses, it's not going to work. And so I cross lines sometimes. I mean, I would never physically wrestle her to the ground, because that, that's just inappropriate. But there was a screaming match we got into in a, in a bathroom about her flushing it down the toilet or not. And she did. But the important thing in that, too, is that is also ki kind of coming to terms with how powerful addiction or disease is. Because I was very glad that she flushed the heroin down the toilet. And I, you know, she got to rehab the next day and, and whatever. But she was very kind of angry, and she felt that, you know, she didn't want to do that, and you know, she, just like an addict is always angry at people in their lives that, that try to make them stop. But it's also this realization about what actually happens in addiction, which is that if waking up next to a friend and they're dead in the morning, going into the hospital almost dying, stealing from your mother, destroying you know relationships, if all of those things don't stop someone from using, chances are my yelling at her or not yelling at her or saying yes you can do it or, or not doesn't really change anything and that's that's the reality and I, I feel very firmly in that. So I will always try to be positive for her but I'm also not deluded into thinking that one moment I can change her or one moment I'm enabling her. It's, it's a much, much larger thing than the relationship between me and her and a camera. I mean it, it's a much, much larger issue. And I don't think actually it plays that important of a role in her life. It's probably more important, you know, in my own. Um, yeah, I would like to first of all pass a comment on what uh, the gentleman over there said about your work. Uh, I'm a photographer. Uh, and I'm very familiar with working with other photographers and trying to understand what it is they're trying to do. And um, it's a common saying about 
photography um, that the camera never lies. Uh, I think the opposite. I think the camera always lies except about the photographer. Um, I've learnt a lot about you by looking at your photographs. Um, another interesting uh, comment for me in passing is that the word cliché uh, is I think a French word for a snap and I think it imitates the sound of a interlens shutter oh. opening and shutting. Um, so it's very strange to call a photograph a cliché. That's all I have to say. very much I really enjoyed uh, you know your work um, Thank you. one question was is about Jessie and her motives for letting you photograph her I keep thinking you know why did she want to do that why is it in her interest or in her good you know to to be shown like that and if you ever felt that by exposing by showing you know the suffering and the hell she goes through you're not actually helping her much because I I, I mean I'm not a professional photographer but I I've been you know trying to take photographs of a relative is ill, and, and many times I, I just can't because I yeah. feel I'm just exploiting her. So, uh, I, you know, just that dilemma. I, this is something I've thought about a lot. Um, one of the things that makes me drawn to people that I photograph is that, and one of the things that makes Jessie a wonderful person to photograph is that she really gets it. So I don't like photographing people that don't like to be photographed. I, it ruins it almost immediately. But she really gets it. She really understood what I was trying to do. And there were moments that I found it really scary to come. I always show them work. And there were moments I found it really scary to come back and show her certain images because they are so kind of horrific. And I think that that she and I see very eye to eye on this, which is that it's the telling of a story and it's the telling of the story in the fullest form. It is, it doesn't have kind of these direct political motivations of like, this is a book to make people not do drugs. Of course I don't want people to do drugs, but that's not what I'm trying to achieve. What I'm trying to do is to document something in, in a complete way and in the way that she allows me to do it. So she invites me in to per certain parts of her life and, and we'll keep other things out. I'm sure that there are things that she hides from me and those are things that don't come up. But this, she kind of went along and I believe that her and, and Rachel and Dion really believe that they have a story to tell, really have suffered a lot and, and see the value in and feel validated by someone going along with it. I think that they feel very silenced. I think that they feel very kind of um, stereotyped but personally underrepresented. And I talk to them a lot about kind of the process of them telling their own story. There was one last one here. Are, are you ever in a situation where the subjects are comfortable with being photographed but you uh, yourself find it too difficult to photograph? And what do you do? No. I'm, um, if someone's okay, I want to go like as far as is okay with them. So if someone wants to let me in, I'm 
down. I mean, unless it's something really like sick and, and I, I, I can imagine maybe there were situations where I would just feel like I have to leave. But I'm the type of photographer that I'm like, oh, you're, you're going to the bathroom? Like, can I, can I come? I mean, I'll go, I want to go anywhere. And this is with everything. This is not just with this story. This is in the paparazzi. It's like, I want to sleep over at their house. I want to see when they wake up in the morning. Do they drink coffee? Are they tired? Do they fight with their girlfriends about being out, you know, stalking these beautiful actresses all night? I want to see as much as they'll be willing to show me. So I never say no. It's a good note to end on. Thank you very much for all your questions.